0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. How do you feel when you suffer? How do you feel when you suffer? Um, How do you feel, especially if you've suffered unjustly? How do you feel? Uh, You can feel angry, you can feel hopeless. You can feel condemned. Uh, you could feel like it's all meaningless. It's chaotic. It's out of control. How do you feel? Uh, and I think the, the, the worst of those, that tendency of how we feel when we suffer, is, is that hopeless feeling. Um, people write about this. You probably know it's true. If you have hope, you can make it through anything. If you, if you start to lose hope, you, the balloon loses the air. Uh, you, you just, you can't seem to breathe. You can't seem to make it. So the question is, where are we going to find hope in our suffering? That's what we want to look at today. We're continuing our series through 1 Peter, where the Apostle Peter wrote to the suffering churches throughout Asia. The what kind of churches? The suffering churches throughout Asia. And we've been calling it life as exiles. And why is that? Well, do you remember what Peter calls Christians? Exiles. Exiles. So what does that mean? Well, that means that this is not your home. Ultimately you, ultimately, you don't you don't belong here. Um, it means you're never going to be ultimately satisfied here. You're never going to perfectly fit in here. You're never going to find everything you were looking for here. You ever you ever got you ever made it to that dinner, that vacation, that date, that relationship, that thing you were always hoping for? You made it to the sweet spot in life, and then you went. That's it. What next? And it's just this echo. Uh, this is not enough. You're made for more. We're, we're exiles. Uh, and Peter's been showing us, as you see yourself as an exile, you're gonna, it changes some of your expectations. So here's one. Um, as an exile, you can expect to be misunderstood by your culture. The world around you is not always going to get you. You're going to believe different things. Uh, like any exile, you can expect to have to work to maintain your identity don't just disappear into the majority culture. Who are you? Are you going to stay that person, specifically as a Christian? Um, do you belong to Christ? And and third, like any exile, you can expect to suffer, and sometimes unjustly, even for doing what is right. Uh, I was I was reading later in this letter. We're going to see in a couple weeks. Uh, he says, "Don't be surprised when uh, when you suffer, as though something strange was happening to you." And yet, I don't know about you. Um, how do you feel when you suffer? It's something like this. What? How can this be? And Peter's like, it's normal. It's normal. So last week we looked at how to respond to unjust suffering, how to respond to unjust suffering. So I want to just glance at verse 15 with you real quick. First Peter 3, 15. Um, look at what Peter says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a what? A reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter's been showing us that our suffering actually provides an opportunity to be an example to the world. And when Christ is holy in our hearts or when we're satisfied in who he is as our shepherd, our Lord, as our Savior, we're going to look different in the way that we suffer it's gonna look different, and we're gonna have an opportunity then to share why we're different. He says, get ready to have an answer for the hope. So last week it was, how do we respond when we're suffering unjustly? That's what we looked at. This week, can you see what Peter's doing? He says, you've always gotta have an answer for the what? The hope that is in you. This week we're looking at, what is the hope? What is the hope that is in you? What are you gonna to cling to when everything in your life is breaking. When your relationships are breaking, when you're, when you're, if you're being persecuted, if you're being reviled, uh, if you're if you're losing, if you're if if you're getting sick, if it, if suffering is overwhelming you, specifically unjust suffering for doing what is right, what are you gonna hang on to? And this is what Peter's giving you. This is the hope. I want see what he's doing. Look at verses 17 to 18. Chapter 3, verse 17, it's right here in your Bible. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So what is it that might be God's will sometimes? Suffering even for doing good might be God's will sometimes. Um, And then, where do we look? Look at verse 18. What are the next two, next four words? For Christ also suffered. You suffer, where do you need to look? Christ's suffering. You suffer unjustly. Where do you need to look? Christ's unjust suffering. If you look at him and his suffering and the victory he's won through his unjust suffering, that gives you hope for your unjust suffering. That's what we're looking at today. The victory Jesus won through his unjust suffering is our hope when we suffer, when we experience unjust suffering. So this is like this text today. I hope there's no vegetarians in here. If, if you're a vegetarian, we love you. I love you. If you're a vegetarian, I love you. I don't understand you. I love you. <laughs> why did I bring this up? This is the kind of thing I tell people I'm training to preach not to do, and I just did it. I This, this, this text is like a Bible steak. That's why I bring it up, okay? You don't serve... A big, juicy steak, probably, to a one-and-a-half-year-old. or it's, it's hard to chew, right? Did you hear the text read? Did some of you go, what? Let me tell you, I did, okay? I'm going to show you later. Martin Luther did when he read the text. <laughs> huh? um, it's rich, rich stuff. As you meditate on it, as you unpack it, you see it. But it's, it's a big, flavorful piece of something to chew on here, that's what I'm getting at with this horrible il- illustration. Uh, and so you got it, you gotta get ready to, to get the, the steak knife and the fork out and be like, okay, let's let's eat this thing. I'll try to put on some A1 for you so it, you know. So you can taste it. We are going to look specifically, purely, at victories Jesus won through his unjust suffering. That's what we're looking at. The victories of Jesus. We're gonna see three of them. Number one, his victory over your very worst problem. Number two, his victory over your enemies. That's where we're gonna tackle some of this strange-sounding language. His victory over your enemies. And number three, his victory over your future. And Peter's logic is, if you can set your anchor down in on the victory Jesus won in his unjust suffering then you are going to have the hope you need in yours. So let's just look, let's just taste, let's enjoy the victories Jesus won. First of all, his victory over our greatest problem. I got interviewed by somebody a couple weeks ago, and he says, uh, what was most surprising to you after being a pastor for however long you've been a pastor? I didn't know what to say to that. It just kind of jumped out of me, and, and here's the honest truth. You know what's been most surprising to me? After being a pastor, however long I've been a pastor, here's what's most surprising to me Um, my own sin still messing with me is what's most surprising to me. Now, it shouldn't be surprising. None of you are surprised. Um, (laughs) But what's surprising is just how um, it doesn't just go away easier or easily, and the more you fight, the more you find new, new layers. I mean, you, you realize uh, how deep the crack goes. And uh, you know, we don't always feel it this way, if I ask you, what's, what's, the biggest <clears throat> what's the biggest challenge you're facing in your life? And I understand, believe me, you might say, well, there's this or that or the other thing. And these are huge challenges, I'm not demeaning any of those, they're not your biggest. <clears throat> you know what your biggest challenge is and your biggest problem? Uh, and you don't want to hear this, I don't either. It's your sin. By far, that's your biggest challenge, your biggest problem is your sin. Let's let's remember reality. It all starts with God, right? He's perfect, he's beautiful, he's ultimate goodness. He creates all things as an overflow of his beauty, of his generosity, of his love. And we human beings, we're created to be satisfied in him and his goodness. What do we do instead? <clears throat> Adam and Eve start it They rebel against the goodness They want to deny his godness They want to replace him as God And put themselves in his own place And we've all followed along We've denied him We've replaced him And we've infuriated him We've infuriated him You know it's the denial of God as God that is the source of all our evil and brokenness in this world. And it infuriates him, and it, sh- it should infuriate him. Um, your sin might not infuriate me as much as it, as it could or should, because I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Same problem. But imagine placing um, my sin in front of perfection, holy perfection, beauty in its... Um, highest form, God himself. And you see, the the more he is beautiful and good and the more hatred he will have for sin. He should have it. He should have it. He's a righteous judge. And we see our evil infuriates him. We've loved it, committed lots of it. Oh, consider, be brave enough to consider just the shade of your own evil. The motives of your heart, you can hide that from me, I can hide it from you, Guess where you can't hide it? The Lord looks at the heart. He knows your motives. He knows your thoughts. And one of the scariest things in the world would be if you know if we could live stream thoughts on the overhead here. Who wants to go first? Pick the longest, the longest term Christian, the the greatest leader, the, the whoever. You want to put their thoughts on the screen, and what will they do? They will shriek and they will run out of the building. They will try to find the source of electricity and pull the plugs as quickly as they can so we will not see what they've thought. And count me first in line here. What about what you've said? It starts playing on the loudspeaker. It just randomly, will pick one of you. And, and the things that you said, and we'll hit play. Oh, sweet mercy, right? Please know, please know. He heard it. And those are just the secret things. Those are the the little things, right? The little things will send me to hell. We haven't even started on the things I've done and the things I've undone. This is my biggest problem. It's your biggest problem. And you add up years and years and years of it. Look at what Jesus said, Luke 12, four to five. What is our biggest problem? Luke 12, 4 to 5. I tell you, friends, don't fear those who can kill the body. I chuckle every time I read that. Because if somebody's like, I could kill you, guess how I feel, if, guess how I feel right after that? I'm afraid. <laughs> You're scaring me. Jesus says, that's no big deal in comparison to this. Don't fear those who can kill the body, and after that, have nothing more they can do. It's little. It's trivial. I warn you who to fear. Fear him who asked her; he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a different level. Well, I bring this up only so that you can, well, so that we can be honest. <laughs> but another reason I bring it up is so you can taste the sweetness of the victory Jesus won for you through His unjust suffering on the cross. Look at verse eighteen. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That first word there means suffered unto death, and we remember the incredible miracle that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, became human, and he became killable, and he lived a perfect life, perfectly pleasing to the Father, no sin, and was tortured and murdered for it, there was no suffering more unjust than Jesus's, right? This was the worst. And yet in his suffering, he won this victory over our greatest problem. Walk through this with me, this glorious truth. It says he suffered once for sins. Once for sins. You know if you're a, if you had a Jewish background, you're you're thinking of infinite numbers of sacrifices for sin. Infinite, in, in, another one, another one. It wasn't enough, it wasn't enough, it wasn't enough. Our sin is too much. And then here's this claim that Jesus suffered once for all the sins of all his people and that's all he needed to do. And you, you start to ponder this and your, your jaw drops and your, your, your brain goes, ma- goes mad with how incredible the cross was for us. This, this Greek word hapax, according to vines, means perpetual validity that does not require repetition the cross has a perpetual validity that does not require repetition which means his sacrifice on the cross was absolutely totally completely perfect to save all of God's people from all of their sins for all time come on aren't you a little bit amazed how much would it take for him just to die for your sin and make it enough? I mean, I keep adding to the list. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a fairly, you know, good person. Who, who do you want to throw in there? You want to join me in here? Did Jesus die for your sins too? Yeah? Boy, now he's got he's to pay for mine and yours. Just the ones in this building? We'd be amazed. You want to add John Newton in there? I throw him in there, he wrote one of the famous songs, right? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch. He, he wasn't just throwing that word in there poetically. You know what his first job was before he became pastor theologian. He was a slave trader. What evils did he commit? We don't want to know. We don't want to see it. How many hells does he deserve to endure? I mean, in, in all justice, if we, if we went back in time and we saw what he did, we'd be like, throw him in hell. He's wicked. He's sick. We're disgusted. That's what we'd all say. Uh, and Jesus paid for his sins on the cross. And it was just once. That's all that was necessary. On the cross, Jesus paid for all our sins. Through his unjust suffering, he won a victory. You could never win for yourself. He died for all your sins. His sacrifice was complete. It also says the righteous for the unrighteous, which means his substitution was perfect. His substitution was perfect. A sinful person dying on a cross. You know, the thief on the cross said it next to Jesus. I'm here because I earned my way. I'm here fair and square. I deserve to be up here. That's not why Jesus was up there. He's not up there for his own sins. 1 Peter 1.22 says it very clearly. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You know, I'll tell you what. If you want to see me sin, crucify me unjustly. It's a horrible thing to say, but th- this is what, ha- what Peter has in mind. What do people say when they are suffering unjustly in a moment like that? They revile. They curse. I mean, imagine—it's—it's it's, it's ugly. It's filthy. Peter is thinking of Jesus' crucifixion, and when, when in that moment he had no reviling. You remember what it says in Luke? What did Jesus say? As they pounded nails into him, "Father, forgive them." No wonder the centurion at the cross is just like—he's the son of God. What on earth? He never sinned. In the worst of his suffering. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Right, here's a triumph of Christ in his unjust suffering. He never sinned. Okay, you impressed with uh, Michael Phelps? How many gold medals does he have? 83 or something, right? <clears throat> you impressed with Tom Brady? No. Somebody, come on, he's got a couple Super Bowls. We get so impressed with, with sports accomplishments. So impressed do you realize how epic it is that Jesus never sinned? And he had Satan himself trying to tempt. How long can you outlast temptation in those uh, weak spots for you? You know, we're, we're giving each other high fives. like, I went a whole week. And Jesus never broke. Never sinned. And that was so he could trade with you he could trade with you where on the cross he would take my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness and through faith he would give me his perfection. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How can it be that we become the righteousness of God? Jesus' substitution was perfect. Finally, Peter says, um, he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Bring us to God. And this has the idea of reconciliation. Reconciliation. You know that sin causes a break in relationship. You know this in your own relationships, right? Somebody says something awful, texts something awful, (coughs) and there's a break. How much more when we rebel against the holy God There's a break, and Jesus suffered for us to make us righteous so that he might bring us to God, and the New Testament uses words like adoption, uses words like marriage, uses words like beloved, so that now, forgiven of your sin in Christ, all your sins paid for, you can come to To the holy God of the universe, the one whom you've denied and defiled, you can come to him and call him a friend. You can call him by the power of the spirit, Abba, Father, Daddy. Jesus brought you to God through his cross. This, This would be enough to ponder, to celebrate forever and ever. My greatest problem is my sin, and Jesus through his unjust suffering, has, has defeated my greatest problem. Are you happy about that today? Is there anybody else in here that's happy about that? He took away your sin to bring you to God. And if your heart's latching onto that, you'll have hope in your unjust suffering. It helps you remember the really big things and to latch onto what you have. And the hope you have that you, your sins are taken care of. Next thing to see, Jesus triumphed over our enemies. Here we get into some of this language. It's a little strange for us. Uh, Peter takes you from a sermon in a spirit prison to the flood and baptism in like one breath. And uh, the first time you heard it, you may have been like, what? And... Uh, And let me tell you, it feels a little different too when you're like, I have to explain this to people? Uh, It'll help you feel a little better. Let's quote Martin Luther. We should do that as often as possible, especially when he says something like this. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) 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 Whew, okay. So if you leave here going, I'm not quite sure, okay. But we can say more than that but we can learn more than that. Let's just uh, add up the details. Verse 18, Jesus was put to, flesh, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What's it mean he was put to death in the flesh? Don't get too complicated, folks. He died <laughs> on the cross. They wrapped him up in gauze and throw him, threw, him in a, threw him in a cave, and he was very dead, all the way dead, completely dead. But he was made alive in the spirit. Here's one of our questions, what does this mean? Is this what his spirit did right after the cross, before physical resurrection? Remember the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell? There's always an argument on, wait, did he, what, when? I'll, I'll just parse this out the way I understand it. He did not go to hell for punishment after the cross, no way. The cross was hell, okay? On the cross, six hours, whatever it was, he starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hell has begun. And then at the end he says, Father, it is finished. Father, into my hands I commit my, your, my spirit. Hell's over. Six hours he took it all. Well, how can he do that? How can he pay for the sins of humanity so quickly? Because he's man and he's God. He can pay in infinite, infinite payment right then and there. That's how he did it. So, descended into hell for punishment? No. No, I don't think so. Descended into some hellish place for some reason. Hmm. Maybe. So your two options here are, is this something Jesus did before his bodily resurrection three days later, or is it something he did after? I, I don't know, okay? I don't think it really matters that much. I lean towards before. I think this happened right after the cross. That's how I like to see it. If you differ with me, fine. But let's look at what he did. Verse 19, in that spirit made alive, he went and what, verse 19, proclaimed to the who? Who? Spirits, and where are they? Prison. Okay, first word. Proclaimed. That word, it's not the evangelisto good news word. It's a different kind of word. It means heralding of victory. It means when Caesar went and won the war and totally defeated his enemies, and the messenger came and said, We won. That's the message Jesus is giving. He's saying, I won. That's what he's saying. Where is he saying it? Who is he saying it to? Spirits in prison. Let me tell you what I know. Uh, these are demons. These are demons. Uh, what are demons? You remember? Do you remember? Do you have room in your worldview for that? Um, if you're just an atheist, everything's material, everything, everything happening now is just cause and effect, this is what happens to this chemical at this temperature, Your view that you have free will and morals and justice and love—that's all just something you'd like. It's not actually real because, really, we're all just doing what we do at this temperature. You raise that out to wait. There is a spiritual world. Is there a you that's that's more than just your body? Do you see it that way? Is there a spiritual world to you? Do you have a soul? Um, Are there other spiritual beings? The Bible says absolutely they are. I believe this too. Uh, not just because God's word says it. Th- there are spiritual beings. Some of them are good, we call them angels. They, they love the Lord, chapter one in Hebrews says they're amazed at our salvation. They actually serve us and, and help us in ways we don't know and, and we, we won't know until glory. There are angels, there are real angels. They're helping us, they're serving us. Uh, if only we could see right now, I wonder, I wonder what's around us. That happens sometimes in scripture where they see and whoa, okay, the, those are the good ones. What, what are the evil ones? Demons, they hate God and his holiness. They hate his worthiness. And guess how they feel about you? They wanna eat you alive. They want your destruction. They know what's coming at the end, and guess who they want to sit next to them? You. And so the major things they do in scripture, number one, is deceive. They want you to think very small thoughts about God, very poor thoughts about God, and very large thoughts about God anything else. As long as you won't honor him, worship him, trust him. They want to deceive you and they want to wreck you and then as they do that, one of Satan's major names is accuser. And I believe this very, very experientially. Um, a, a, a demonic oppression will say this. He, it will point out to you every flaw and problem and sin you've ever had and then it will land on you There's no hope. You've gone too far. You're too wicked. You're too evil. It's over. Give up. Accuse. So tempt you into sin and then accuse you for the sin so that you'll be lost. That you give up. That's what they do. And Peter takes this very seriously. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Those are violent words. Peter's taking this very seriously. There's a spiritual realm that wants to wreck you. Be awake. Okay, so he's talking to demons. Now, here's kind of... We don't think about this very, very much. L- let, me, let me bring up this story to you. Um, you remember the story Luke 8, where Jesus goes to uh, this place where the, the demon-possessed guy who lives in the tombs. It's a crazy story. He's a mess. He's naked. He, he cuts himself. They chain him up. He breaks the chains. He's about as scary a person as you can find. When Jesus comes to him in Luke 8, he falls on his face and, and the question Luke is asking is, who's really scary out there? We're scared of demon man. <laughs> demon man is scared of Jesus. <laughs> and so the, the demons actually cry out to him. Look what they say to Jesus. Luke 8, 30. Jesus then asks him, what's your name? And he says, legion. Legion means hundreds, lots, a group. So it's the idea of there's hundreds of demons in this person. This is as ugly as it gets. He said, legion for many demons has entered him. And look what they beg him. That's all I'm asking for you to see right here. Verse 31. They beg him not to command them to what? Depart into the abyss. So all we have here, by the way, Jesus totally saves. This guy says, get out, right? They go into pigs, jump in the ocean. Weird story. The best part is that dude saved, healed. Redeemed. Jesus has power over Satan and evil. Amen. For our purposes right here, evidently there's a place certain demons don't want to go to. What do they call it in this text? Please don't send me there. And it's this weird interaction where Jesus is like, all right, I'll let you I'll let you hang out longer. Here's another verse for you. Jude 1, 6. Jude's in the middle of this long conversation, but we. Collecting information here about our text. Jude 1.6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in what? Eternal chains under gloomy darkness until when? Judgment day. Oh, so we, we get this, this other fact. There are some demons. Where are they? In this abyss prison. And they can't do anything anymore. What are they waiting for? Judgment. What was the story uh, Peter picks up on here? Remember, it moves really fast. He preaches the spirits in prison, and he's bringing it up back in the days of Noah. Now, if you read in Genesis six, look at Genesis six five. The Lord saw wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. As you read that text, there's some weird demonic stuff happening where it just got so wicked. So evidently, we're just putting all these things together, right? Where do demons not want to go? This abyss jail place that exists where, where they can't do what they do, they're, they're waiting for judgment. And at some point during this flood story, guess what God did with some of these? Some of these demons. He sent them there. Too much. Too far. Go to jail. Don't pass go. You're done. That's what we know from scripture. Okay, all that is to set this up. Jesus on the cross. This is a world we we don't really get to to know much about. But how long have demons known of Jesus? Ages. How well did they know of Jesus? Jesus. When they were first created, they were created good. They they worshiped at his feet. They've seen what he's like. And then what change happened in them. They hated him. They rebelled against him. They, They defy him. They deny him. What happens to that demonic realm when Jesus, the son of God, is on a cross? What are they saying? They're celebrating. We got him. God's plan wrecked. We got God in our hands and we're ripping him to shreds. And there's no hope for God's people. They've killed their own savior. We win. And I imagine it like this. Guess who shows up right there in the abyss living room? He shows up right there in in the abyss living room. And he comes with a message. And we know what the message is. Let me give it to you in two words. I win. I win. I either have or I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm gonna destroy every evil thing you've ever done and all of my people you've been messing with, I'm setting them free and evil loses. I'm gonna redeem creation. I won't lose one of my people. I win. You've lost. Jesus has defeated our enemies through What? His unjust suffering on the cross. Look at Colossians 2 13 to 15. I love this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's Jesus. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. That is, his demonic enemies put to shame. They cannot they cannot lie to you and win anymore, ultimately. They cannot accuse you and win anymore. You have been set free, they lose. He wins. We win in him. That's what Peter's saying. And he did that through his unjust suffering, which gives you hope in your unjust suffering. Third one, Jesus has triumphed over our future. I wanna skip the first part of 21 just for now, grab onto the back part of 21 into 22. Uh, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So right there, land on it just for a moment. What happened after the cross? The resurrection. The best news in history. Death can be defeated. Death has been defeated. Sin can be defeated. Sin has been defeated. There can be a happy ending to this dumpster fire of a planet. Resurrection. He's alive. The Father's satisfied with what he's done. Evil will lose. We will get new bodies. We'll get a new creation. He wins. And where does he sit now, my friends? Verse 22. Jesus is risen from the dead, he's gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God. That's the biggest chair in the universe. Anybody on Twitter, or if you read news, evidently the Korean dictator and our president were Twitter, Twitter bombing each other on who has the biggest nuclear, nuclear button. I'm a little embarrassed, you know. Um, and they both sit in big chairs, and you get the sense that some of them, sometimes they're a little impressed by the chair they sit in, okay? I want to tell you that their chair is nothing compared to Jesus' chair. It's absolutely nothing. Uh, the nations, Isaiah 40 says, the nations are drops in a bucket. Listen, we, we live in a, in a broken world. God sets up authorities. He's doing things for his purposes. There's mystery here, but the truth is, Jesus is king, and he's king right now. And he reigns. And he rules. And do you realize this? The person in the biggest chair knows you. Can you imagine? Could you walk into the Oval Office right now? There's a couple people who can do that. Probably the relatives of the president. Can you walk into the throne room of God? You can't. You're invited there. In fact, mysteriously, you're united to Christ. You sit there right now. Which means the one who rules everything, rules over it all for your good. We suffer, or we just think of suffering. (laughs) And I'm uh, in the fetal position under my bed, you know? (laughs) I'm afraid. And Jesus says, do you remember the chair I've earned through my unjust suffering? I reign right now, and I have you in my mind. You're mine, not because of how great of a life you've ever lived, but by my grace, undeserved love, through faith, you trust in me. You're mine, and I reign for you. You can have hope in the midst of suffering, unjust suffering, because Jesus reigns over your future. There's no suffering you'll ever be in that he is not sovereign over and that he will not work it for good. I was thinking of how to illustrate this, and I, I just, I'm not skillful enough. So I thought I'd do this. I'm gonna ask you to read the back part of Romans 8 with me. I'm going to, I wanna ask you to read the back part of Romans 8 with me, and I want you to think of Jesus in his chair at the right hand of God, king of the earth, and I want you to hear these words um, as we think of him reigning over our future, let's get that up. Romans 8, 31. Let's read it together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life First of all, look to him in your suffering. Look to him, look to him, look to him. Look at the victory he has accomplished for you through his unjust suffering and let that be your hope in yours. And there's more. Has to do with our hearts. Back to this Noah story. Peter brings up eight people in a boat. Eight people in a boat. And what's swirling all about them, if you know the story, the wrath of God in water form. (laughs) Utter chaos that we can't imagine. And they're in this boat. You think it was cozy, comfy, fun? No, it was dark and they were with their in-laws, right? (laughs) Which was the great part. The bad part was the animals, you know? Um, They're in this boat, but they're brought safely through the storm of wrath and turmoil. Safely, they didn't float over it, they went through it. But they made it because they were in this ark. And Peter says, that reminds me of baptism. Uh, you know, you get you get wet and you're you're acknowledging the wrath of God that you deserve in water form. <laughs> you're dying. And you're drying off, and you're remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. And Peter says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking that, but but not the water that washes dirt off. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not talking about the, the water itself. I'm talking about what happens in your heart, not not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Does your conscience ever bother you? I hope you're alive. I'm serious." If your, if your conscience isn't bothering you, that's a very, very scary thing. You're, you're, in a very, you're in a very dangerous place. You're very deceived, basically. But on the other side, when, when my conscience bothers me, that, that's horribly, I, I do not enjoy that. I do not enjoy that. And sometimes you look back at your life and you think, well, I didn't do that good enough. Oh my gosh. And you have this appeal. Oh, if only I could be clean, forgiven, loved, Uh, accepted, right, okay, and we come and look at what Peter says, this appeal to God for a good conscience, I want to be right with you. I want my sins forgiven. I want to live for you. I sense the wrath of God around. How do I get through it? And Jesus says, I know an ark that will take you through it. And guess, guess where you find it? It's him. He's the ark. You appeal to me for a good conscience. You say, I need you, forgive me, let me be yours. Jesus says, hop in. And his cross is the wrath of God swirling about. And you're safe because you're in him. And his resurrection And all its power owns you and and surrounds you and changes you and transforms you. He's the ark. And so the response to see this is just be like, Jesus, let me be yours. Forgive me of my sins. Let me be yours. Let me belong to you. To the point where you even say, you know what, I really do not like this suffering thing. Uh, I don't like it. But whatever you bring me, I'll go through it if I can just be with you. Can your heart say that? Can you say that? You're in the ark. So we turn to a Jesus, we appeal to him for a good conscience. We have him as our hope. When we suffer even that unjustly, where do we look for hope? Jesus. And we look at his victory that he's accomplished over your sin, over your enemies over your future. He accomplished that victory through his unjust suffering and he's your ark. Your ark through the storm and his victory is ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you so much. Uh, We just love this idea that through faith in you, trust in you, you're, you're our ark through the storm, you're our hope in suffering and you're our promise that suffering will end. So we come to you, Lord, give us a clean conscience, help us be yours. Forgive us of our sins, God, they are many, we thank you that you died for them. You, you rose for us. You have brought us to God. Lord, help us just to have submissive hearts, to trust you, to follow you, to live for you in whatever you call us to uh, with our hope planted on the victories of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflife.com folfcrc.com.